are listening to the Open Nesters podcast. Why be an empty nester when you can be an open nester? Open to new adventures, relationships, and passions, and your aging vitality, spirituality, and sexuality. The Open Nesters podcast, reimagining the empty nest. We're not empty nesters. We're open nesters. Our home, our hearts, our lives are open to endless possibility. Open nesting is so much, just so much more fun. There's so many people to meet out there. There's so many friends to make, and there's so much sexual fun to have. Hi, this is Tessa, executive producer of the Open Nesters podcast. So happy you're joining us and welcoming you to explore your openings in Act 3. Every February, in anticipation of Valentine's Day, we bring you at the Open Nesters love, sex, and intimacy-related episode. This one is the beginning of that series for the month of February with Dr. Karen Berry. Karen Berry is a great way to lead this month because Karen is not only a a very experienced marriage and sex therapist, she trains people and she has a soulful spiritual approach to this, which I really feel like we can look at at this stage of our lives as open nesters. So I know you will enjoy this interview. Let's hear it from Karen Berry and open up the Valentine's February of the Open Nesters. Welcome to the Open Nesters podcast. My newer, newest friend and, and became very dear to me, Dr. Karen Berry. How are you today? I'm so glad to be here with you, Tessa. Yeah, mm. we had a beautiful experience of grief and dance workshop and um, two different times together, which was profound because it was my first step into that. And you've been doing the work, not just around your own personal grief, but also, I mean, I would say the work of your life in so many ways of helping people in in their dance, in their intimacy, in their relationships, and, and deeply in their married relationships, including, as I know, you do this training for, couple, for therapists about couple therapy. So you're an expert in intimacy in so many ways. So why don't you catch us up to... Um, I don't know what's what what what's what's bubbling for you right now. Like as far as your work and what's important to you, how would you how would you? Or even if you want to give us a little personal bio, either one of those. It's such a beautiful question. What's bubbling, bubbling to the surface, like water, a spring coming to the surface? It's so beautiful, Tessa. And to take the moment to breathe for me in and out. The question, as you were saying before we got uh, into recording and got online, that you've been reading this book, uh, Welcoming the Unwelcome, and the practice of Tunglin and being able to breathe in suffering and breathe out grace. Or at least that's the possibility uh, as you do the practice, which is something I'm very familiar with. And that's the work I've been doing for 35 years, whether it's with individuals or couples or groups or training therapists, to be able to grow the skill set and have a clear roadmap of how to go into dark, complex frequently overwhelming experiences, whether it's their own or another person's, 
or their persons, that is their couple, their person, I'll call them. I really love to say that. This is your person if they really are your anchor. And that the holding the space for people and professionals and couples to truly understand that it's the darkness, the pain, that is the door that opens us to transformation, to freedom, to a new life that's hard to imagine from this side of being in the pain. So some, some people who've never entered that realm, they don't, they don't know how to breathe even. How do you start with them about, well, first of all, I like them to look at the why. Do you feel like you've seen that open up love for people? because they've been able to do that as a couple in their partnership. I would love to hear how intimacy can be um, expanded. Well, it's an interesting thing, Tessa. I'd love to say your name, Tessa. <laughs> uh, that it's very uh, embodied for me. And we spent so many days, whether it was on the dance floor or sharing a room at Esalen, as we did the second grief retreat and the moving body, that intimacy is really not what people think it is. People think intimacy is uh, fun and pleasurable and uh, a good thing in the sense of, oh, this just feels so good. When the reality is in knowing and connecting with a person over a lifespan or over a number of years, sometimes even a number of months, that intimacy is an acquired taste. That is how do, so to help people and couples to understand that intimacy is complex and it's a growing machine if you choose to do it with one person honestly, and then if you add a third person, honestly, now you've made it even more complex, very rich, but complex and painful. And so the work that's most important to me these days is around grief and loss, death, because from that place humans ripen into their capacity for an erotic life. Ero well, that, a life. That, I mean, that sounds like really amazing to me. And I just wonder if someone's listening, I know their ears are like, don't really get that because it's hard concepts to absorb. Like you're saying, the complexity of the nuance of how can death be part of intimacy? But so, so I, and I'm, my, my response to that is that I, from what I keep learning kind of more new than you are in that, is that like all things kind of have to die just like our cells die in order to open that ripening. So almost like <clears throat> we have to give up each day what we expect from our partner in order mm. to, and kind of let that go in order to open more intimacy. So I'd like to talk about only like one partnership of any kind, how it can be ripened into, into a more intimate place. Like what are the tools you actually told me in our pre-interview what we discussed this building the architecture of a sacred container. I love those words. And I was like, so tell me how you build the architecture of this, this sacred container. That's what I'm so curious about. Well, 
every couple is unique or every group of people are unique, unique as a fingerprint. And part of being able to build a sacred container is to be able to slow the couple or the group down. Slow them down because the body is what houses the soul and soul is very slow. And for me, soul is what we're looking for. I'm also a sex therapist. When we're building, I'm building a sacred container with the couple. And by the way, I can't do the work. They have to do the work. And everything that comes up in the process of slowing them down, something as simple as sitting them face to face and looking into each other's eyes and slowing them down and helping them to be very comfortable in their body. And therefore, whatever comes up within their body and between the two bodies or three bodies or four bodies is the work. Like people get agitated, annoyed, fidgety, uncomfortable. They get bored. They Like, oh, what happens when this particular couple or this particular triad or slows family. down or even, or even family. a family discussion right and that's slowing down and all of us can pause in this moment listeners and think about the last conversation that went awry that they wished for an outcome and they were so far from it and maybe sad or frustrated annoyed hopeless and i suspect they remember that conversation that what they'll notice is things got very fast, like a fast car driving, and it ran into an accident. There was a blockage in the middle, and they ran into it rather than slowing down to do the intimacy. I'm noticing you're frustrated. Or yesterday... I got agitated in a meeting that happened spontaneously and then somebody got agitated on the other side and I was able to slow down and say, wow, I think it must be my voice that's really got you thinking that uh, I'm in a negative space. And he said, yes. And I said, I'm sorry. And I am pumped up. I just came off the dance floor. I led this movement work and this ecstatic dance. People showed up and some were a little off. I had to navigate it. And now there's all this responsibility that's coming at me. And I got, I'm jacked up. I need to slow down. And really, I can't do that right now. Can we make a meeting? And then there were five of us. We have it Wednesday morning at 8.15. But this morning, I had to call that man and say, hey, friend of mine, remarkable DJ, and say, hey, can we talk? And it took us 20 minutes to slow it down, to get to know what we each were telling ourselves. What was the story? What was each of our agitations? And 
what really is the work that we needed to move forward. And we did a good job. Well, this is why I've never met anyone like you that opened something, because as you know, I not only speak fast, but I'll speak in generalizations. And you were like, you know what, just let's slow down. And can you just try to be specific? And it is so important for ourselves to learn. And it's so difficult. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and then and then I always believe because I like to be playful about it, can we just laugh at ourselves and try to get a little distance from it? Yeah. In order to witness how we can come back to this discussion within and try to create more intimacy with any human being in our lives, right? And build a sacred container, which was your question. No small question you were asking there, Tessa. Sacred, not just, which is the work I do, whether I'm leading grief retreats, whether I'm leading ripening retreats for a couple or for a triad if they're in a polyamorous relationship or a family. Uh, And so typically it's around sexuality and tantra work and having a richer, deeper, darker, more rich connection in real time that includes sexuality or working with a family who are trying to help a family member have a good death. And part of having a good death is everyone or most of the key people being able to be in the story in a way that is slowed down and digestible, exhaling, like tongue lin, right? It's very much, how do we bring that into life? Now, I'm not saying that great sex sometimes isn't fast and hard, but uh, (laughs) mostly that gets tiring when... Especially with age. So let's talk about this stage of life. Okay. I know you've probably counseled many people, and then you do this training for therapists that are dealing with open nesters, people at the stage mm-hmm. of life where they now looking at each other like, who the hell are you? Like, do I want to leave you? There's so much gray divorce because of that. Yeah. How do you help them start this process of, of building this sacred container? I mean, what, with the very, I mean, for them to start building, I mean, slow down was obviously the first, the very first instruction. Well, <laughs> and, and I never meet with a couple for under three hours because I need to be able to know I have enough time to not move in quickly, but to really see who they are. And I actually have people talk with each other. I have them do things so I can see them in action. And my training includes evaluating people and their attachment styles, neurobiologically, how's the arousal system and trauma system working? What is it they say they really want? And what is it they actually want? Because so often people think they want something, but they really don't. Like you were saying, I want intimacy, but boy, I like to go fast, which isn't (laughs) intimate. Although it can be fun, it can make life easier in the moment, but never in the long run. Does it make it easier to bypass those critical, important places of discomfort? So as long as you come back, like you say you do, to those junctures, those places of pain and discomfort, then that's good. But lots of people don't 
come back. Let me just say that. So when they get in my office, a a lot of what is up is I get to see very quickly in those first three hours what's really happening. And by the way, I tell them, I, I really give them a readout and they get to see it and see themselves in real time. Anyway, I interrupted you. I apologize. No, no, I, I interrupted you. So I, I think especially at this stage when people are looking at each other and maybe they're not yet, I don't know, ready to do a three-hour session. I'm just wondering if you can give a few like just basic ways to come into that kind of intimate discussion that that opens the, the harder things for okay. us. And, and, you know, we're, we're looking at each other not knowing as we play these roles of parents. Yeah. So... You know, is if there's anything that you can, or even even if there's a a couple that you've dealt with that came into your practice, or or helped some of your therapists. Um, well, yeah. I think those are two different questions, and I'm going to really answer the question that you first posed, which is, so what suggestions could you give folks who aren't ready in any to seek that kind of support, that kind of intimacy with a uh, very experienced professional who is committed to driving the boat or driving their relationship forward. So one of the things is for each individual to find ways to become embodied, to slow themselves down before they sit down for the meeting. And by the way, so That might mean for most, it's walking in nature, maybe exercise, maybe writing in their journal, and less about, hey, what's my agenda? But can I find my soft center and a way that I can feel tender toward myself and tender toward my person? And I might be angry at them, but could I still be in touch with tenderness? Can I remember times that they were really there for me? And that's a big deal because a lot of people use anger, Tessa, to get enough fuel to then have the conversation. They like they use anger to propel them because they're so frightened of that conversation. And that really doesn't go well. Because when we're angry, the brain is running hot. We're not able to access any of our more current understandings of the world, our more sophisticated skills. If we're a meditator or we've been working on nonviolent communication or yoga or any lovely practice, you can't access it when you're all jacked up on anger. But when you're jacked up on anger, you do feel like you can speed. I want to get through this as fast as possible, which guarantees a lousy outcome with your person that you have spent your life with or 10 years with or 20 years with or one year, and they are very important to you. They're not disposable. But when we're angry, we do think the person's disposable. It's very easy for all of us, me included, the Buddha, everybody. (laughs) Dalai Lama, like, ah, when we're angry, uh, we throw the baby out with the bathwater. So important. I love this slowing down. Like, I get it in my body when I talk to you. That's why you're such an outstanding professional. And I am, and I, and so people can, 
we'll ask at the end if how they can find even referrals because you don't even take that many new clients. I know that you're not doing this as a major promotion for yourself. Yeah, you're no. slowing down in your life. Correct. But do you feel like do they need to find a professional? Are there books or resources or ways that you think they can teach themselves how to do that anger management? I mean, not it's not strictly anger management the way I think society sees it. It's really well, this deeper softening. Yeah, I was trying to make it practical, like how to make it accessible to people who've never done it. And usually those are the things that I mentioned that stand in the way. They're scared. And I'm warning people that anger is a natural way that humans propel themselves forward when they're scared, which actually has a lot of application to polarization now on the whole planet. That's another conversation, which I think is so important, but another time if you invite me back. Mm. So the um, a book, there's many books, but uh, one person who talks about it very accessibly is Stan Tatkin. And there are even audio recordings. He's got a great voice. He's funny. He's really smart. Uh, he did something called Your Brain on Love. It's a great set of recordings. But he's written several books, one about dating, one about many about relationshiping, about marriage, about vows. And he writes very straightforward and very practically. And so that's a, not a bad place to access some resources. And then around ways to slow down while being in each other's presence. Sometimes it's finding music that slows you down. Taking a meditation class possibly together. These days it's very pretty easy to find even online that slows you down. You could do that on an, uh, a YouTube for free. I think there are a lot of good teachers out there, but anybody who's selling instantaneous fixes, that's back to that fast thing. Intimacy isn't fast. People, in order to have deeper intimacy, more vulnerability, more richness, more yumminess online, means you have to be able to weather and digest more pain, which is why the grieving process as we age, we all losing people and we are losing our own beauty or our own strength. There's so much we're losing. And we're losing our, our, our who our person used to be, uh, who we used to be to our person. And how do we grieve those losses rather than blame? And that's also very beautiful work to do. And there's so many beautiful books and people talking about it. I'll get some more books from you afterwards. But profound to me is what you're saying that and this is so true of this stage of life. As our kids got older and we're looking at our last act, what we are calling act three as open nesters, mm. we're so touched by how we have to change rather than speeding past it, holding on to youth, holding on to what was. Instead of looking at, on the other side of despair, there is joy. And within joy, there is sadness. 
And yes. all of that is okay to in order to create more of a connection with people that you love. And it doesn't feel natural to us. So we have so much real feeling to go through about it. And you're right that most people don't want to go through that hardship. But if they, even if they want to like just start to feel it, I mean, I think you're right about meditating together, taking a walk in nature together, but slowing down and not ever making it about what you're trying to arrive at doing anymore. Because this stage of life offers us the chance to slow down. Yeah, it does. And when we slow down in relationship with our long uh, range partner, uh, so often when I meet couples, they maybe have fallen out of love. And one of the things we've come to understand in relationship science <clears throat> is that people fall in love because they stop making eye contact. They stop really being face to face and like when you originally found love, you made goo-goo eyes. You know, you really spent time looking at each other. And so that's why when people go on vacation or do something fun together, frequently they start to have positive feelings again because there's novelty, which is a little excitement, but they really get time to look at each other, talk, focus on yummy, good things. And by the way, when couples are avoiding hard, painful things, they're also avoiding spending good time together frequently because they're afraid the negative will come up either in their own heart or in their partner's heart. And so they're avoiding novelty they're avoiding good stuff together which would re-glue them together like oh i i see it's an amazing thing tessa when i work with couples and i've been doing this now over 30 years so thousands and th thousands of couples i i thought i would remember them oh i'll always remember now i look at my files and i'm like i don't remember so when I've worked with some couples who have gotten divorced and then a few years later, they start to date again. And it's so interesting as they really date each other again, they date each other again, they date each other. Yeah. <laughs> and that one of the things happens in that relationship that I don't find happens in any other, maybe, maybe there is one other one, but they see each other as young back when we fell in love. Um, that literally the brain gives this image as you gaze into each other's eyes and start to fall into each other that you're timeless. That's really hard to have at the brand new relationship when we're in our 60s, 70s, 80s. Although possible. But I, I'm really telling you the brain gets is different. So when people reconnect with their childhood sweetheart, it also happens. Yeah. That they see their either they're disgusted and they turned away, like, oh my God, I can't believe how much they changed. Or they really just see them as young and therefore their young selves. They're seeing in their this person's eyes. They see themselves as young. And that's part of what they're falling in love with. Again. Well, does, can you fall, does falling in love require us seeing each other as young? I mean, that's so no. I don't even call it falling in love anymore because I feel like at this stage of life, 
falling sounded to me like I was like, it was just a chemical thing, you know, I just, mm. and I fell in love very easily. I had a lot of fallings in love. Mm. So I almost feel like now I grow in love. Mm. That's lovely, Tessa. It's yeah, really I really love. do. And, and it doesn't always come from because I see somebody young. And I have had friends that I've said, wait, are you still making out with your husband? Are you still having hot sex? I mean, maybe they're not having hot sex, but at least kissing or looking in each other's eyes. Because that is essential. I see with my husband how much that reconnects us each time. If in the morning we gaze at each other after all these years, yeah. And if if when we decide to kiss, we really kiss face to face with a beautiful like awareness of look of slowly coming back to each other. Yeah. To me, that's not just seeing each other young. It's actually growing deeper. I agree with you absolutely. And I was just commenting on something or sharing something about there's something that happens that literally people's brains see the person as young and it's like a trick of the mind. And I'm, you don't have to see the person as young. In fact, your example of what you and your husband do is building a sacred container. You slow down, you look into each other's eyes. We're going to really kiss and the kissing isn't a throwaway. It's a real feeling of your own lips, your own breath, your own smell and taste. And he is doing similarly. And that changes the brain. It changes us. And we get in touch with the good stuff that's there. By the way, we can also get in touch with disgust that might be there. But tell me and, about that, because there are people that have said that to me. I, I I don't make out with my husband. I just have sex. So 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 talk, yeah, talk to me about that. Well, the first thing to go in all marriages, most marriages, if we look at interview them and get the data, is kissing. So it's just interesting to know that that that's normal. People stop kissing. Why do they stop kissing? They kiss. They stop kissing for a lot of reasons, neurobiologically and in the attachment world. They stop kissing because, first of all, when you're in that close, your brain and your is smelling your partner, and they're smelling you, which sends a lot of cues to the brain that actually travel at the speed of light faster than you can think. <laughs> just very interesting to. Think about that. So if you and your partner clearly had an initial good chemistry together, when you're accessing that again through smell and taste, that that brings online some good things. But meanwhile, kissing is so intimate, including with yourself, Tessa. So as you're kissing your partner, Things that are unresolved between you and he start to emerge in your awareness. Have you noticed that? Yes. And there are times that I'll just cry and he's able to just hold that because I do let myself cry when I feel that. Mm. Yeah. Very intimate, it sacred. And sacred. And so, but people who can't do it, uh, tell me again. So they're, they're sm- is it because their pheromones well, changed? I mean, did they, this chemical thing that you're talking about, did uh, it this. The simplest way to say it, uh, the simplest way is that if they kiss, they can't deny what they don't like about their partner. Let's just make it that simple. I can't deny it. 
And by the way, the more we're disappointed or not feeling good about our partner, the more the brain is negatively biased, which means I'm noticing the icky things about you. And so if I start kissing you and I'm already having negative feelings towards you, now more negative things are going to be presented in my brain. So a simple example is somebody comes into my office and they've had a really bad day. And I ask them, tell me about the way you grew up. You know, tell me about your parents. And since they've had a bad day, they're coming in stressed. They're going to tell me bad things about the way they grew up. Because the brain just works that way. When it's in uh, a mood, when it's running hot, it's going to access those kinds of memories. Whereas, say this individual or this couple were just in the car and they had a lovely time together. It was like a date on the way to my office. And I ask them, they're going to start telling me really terrific things. Wow. wow. And even when they tell me about hard things, they're going to say, yeah, but it's not that bad. We can handle it. Wow. Because they're in a positive space. So unresolved pain between a partner, partners. And so often the pain is you didn't meet my expectations. I thought marriage, I thought this committed relationship, this polyamorous experience, whatever it is, I thought it was going to be this. And I'm mad, I'm upset, I'm scared. And I want to avoid that pain because it's so complex to deal with. And I don't want to slow down because I don't like grieving that my expectations don't line up with reality. I want to just think it's about I have the wrong uh, person I'm dating or maybe I married the wrong person rather than no. Is is it okay to curse? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> this shit's hard. This shit's Polyamory this shit's hard. is hard. And I mean, and also relationships are hard. I mean, yes. monogamy is hard. Nothing, nothing's Very. easy. So nothing's I would say, easy. And, the, and bypass the bypass thing. This is interesting because I do feel like there were years that I think we kissed less. We were busy. I, he annoyed me. You know, we got through some, we, a, a couple that's been together a long time has, is going to have gone through waves of ups and downs. Absolutely normal. And, and so I just want to say that there, sometimes I would bypass it as I started getting into my own sensation. I would get high and then I would just allow my body to relax. And so I didn't let my brain think. I think I kind of bypassed it by turning it off. Ah, uh, yes. So do you ever let people try to do that because their body contact can help them by letting the stuff in the brain go, all the stuff they're holding? For me, it always depends upon the couple's and the individual's goals. What do they say they want to do? Some people come in and say, look, I have a terrible aversion to my partner's breath. They haven't been able to afford teeth. That's happened. Uh, Or that I really just don't like the way my person's body smells and their breath smells. And that happens more often than not. I don't like the way their genitals smell. I don't like the way they taste. And I want to figure out how to deal with that problem. And some of it is exploring, are there ways to bypass that? Are there ways to amplify what feels good or good enough? And that shifts that. So, and smell is a, and taste are a very 
a tricky thing neurobiologically. We know a lot more about that now. As a clinician, I could talk about that, but that's another conversation. When, simply put, when we feel threatened by our partner or we cannot like their taste or smell, unless that's part of our erotic template that we like to feel danger. <laughs> so but that's for fun. So nuanced, right, right, exactly. That's why it's every couple is unique as a fingerprint. Exactly. And and it's very fun to explore that when people understand that there's nothing pathological about them being different than another couple. There's nothing pathological about not liking the smell of your partner's breath or the taste of their pussy or their semen. That is it's interesting and how do we slow down and get in close to that and get vulnerable and explore it without making it personal and the thing i love about your podcast is it is really uh reaching out to people who are more mature who've lived a lot of life and so they're not young with a lot of idealized things oh not still some idealization but that they hopefully, as you yourself, have experiences of things being not good or bad, and then they get better. I hang in there and I become more skillful and I focus on the good stuff and we figure out how to tolerate what's stressful or disappointing or just miserable because someone's mother's dying or someone is dying or the child is really struggling or like things like life is hard the human race is a hard place to reside it's so hard. just being compassionate like is i mean I, you know i want to wind down in a, in a couple of minutes so is there anything that you would say that you want to make sure you haven't said to a couple that is at this stage of life if you're willing even though you feel scared or averse to slowing down, if you're willing to explore slowing down, as simple as a piece of music that you both can listen to or move together, that you may be surprised. You may really be surprised by your capacities, your partners, and the love that is between you, that is palpable, even though there's anger, disappointment, even mistrust. Love can be palpable by slowing down. That's such a good arc to how we started. So, so give us your website, how people can reach you. I like people to hear your voice saying it, and we'll have it in our podcast notes. Uh, it is drkarenberry.com. No spaces, D-R, Karen, Barry, no spaces. And uh, don't hesitate to reach out with a question or curiosity. My website is, uh, I, I myself, as you said, I'm slowing down. So there's lots of changes that have been happening there. And I came on because you're my soul friend that we've been on this journey not because i was thinking hey check my website out to build business so if anything's confusing please don't hesitate to reach out what a gem you are thank you so so much for your time today tessa is the name of this episode 
which called Why Slowing Down Builds Intimacy, Karen truly, truly explained to us how slowing down can really have a long-term effect on any relationship, no matter how old you are, no matter what stage in the relationship you're with. Absolutely. We can't bypass discomfort. And it's something that a fast society teaches us to do with quick fixes. And that's why I love this so much, because it it takes into account that we do all have anger and fear, and we do all have upset, and we do have natural places of discomfort. But we rather than looking at it and, and grieving it and and knowing how to then look at each other and find the vulnerable spaces to then connect through, people rush through their lives. And so this is a stage as we are open nesters to really look more deeply and and use some of the tools that Karen brings up for us to slow down things that we have learned to do over time that I, I you know, I do feel like we've been fortunate to have that privilege to right. slow down. And, you know, from the beginning, when we started in the swinging and then when we moved to Pali, we always felt that the beginning of any relationship, uh, intimate relationship or sexual relationship, start with some foreplay. And we always felt that the foreplay should be, at least I did, I felt like the foreplay should be extended. And I always like extended foreplay and extending that uh, development of uh, the intimacy. So slowing down is really also extending it as well. And I want to say something very important that I feel it is very difficult to build intimacy real fast. Intimacy, obviously, uh, really have to do with also trust. Intimacy is not only being intimate sexually with a partner. It's also the ability to be vulnerable, to be able to open up and expose yourself to the point where you cry and you're sad and you let people see you really in the dark side of yourself. And that takes time. You can't just jump into that and then within two, three dates develop intimacy to the point where you can do that it is a process and it takes slowing down to develop absolutely i i love i love the idea of of taking our our time especially with kissing and 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 you know we can't actually a foreplay shouldn't even be the word it should just be the thing. They should be it should be playing. Correct. I it should agree. be soft, sensual play from my point of view. So instead of rushing, although you know, fast and furious can be fun on occasion and still even at our ages. But I do feel like the real place that you're gonna see my soul only comes from when I'm really bearing it and that requires that that that's exposure to my senses and my love and my heart and my and my and and my and my tears and my fears. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I feel that intimacy requires trust, and that trust cannot be earned or obtained just uh, within a date or two or three or 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 extended date. It takes slowing down and developing, and that's why uh, Dr. Karen Berry information and advice is so so wise and relevant to everybody in any stage of life. Right, because she says at the beginning that pain opens the door to transformation and freedom. And and that's what that's what leads to this ripened life. It's not from denying it. And, and uh, you know, I just remember what she said also about that most couples lose 
the sense of kissing. They lost the desire to kiss anymore, and that's where they start falling apart from each other. And uh, I'm just happy and proud to know that we haven't stopped kissing, and we still like it, and we're still connecting, sometimes in deep, uh, sensual kisses. And that's really, uh, I understand now that uh, why uh, our love and relationship are so vital. And I'm going to read this book. I love Ben Stan Tatkin about your brain on love. I think understanding the science that she's so wise at. So this has been a really great opening, I think, for us to look at. We're going to have some other interesting, more sexy and more alternative and, and you know, episodes over this February uh, month. But I really thank Karen because I wanted her to open it with that softness of slowing down into intimacy. So stay with us for the month of February and, of course, go back to last February, if you like, and all to other episodes that we have on the Open Nesting Podcast. That's theopennesters.com, double in the middle, S at the end. We'd love to hear from you, love you to subscribe to our podcast and on any of podcast platform that you like exactly and also on our website if you want to go to the category you go to listening you go to the category of love and sex there's actually a category of all of the episodes were not only during february times because we've done some lot of love and relationship episodes on this podcast so i hope you're enjoying it i hope you're growing i hope you're opening your heart as an open nester truly truly thank you for listening and opening our season fourth with so many more new listeners yeah uh, we're just so proud of of uh, uh, of our podcast and we so so grateful for you to join us uh, almost weekly yeah thank you so much and and really follow us on instagram help us build that community and share continue to share and i'm really um grateful until next time this is amir this is tessa we'll see you on the next episode ciao you have been listening to the open nesters podcast a production of kiwi publishing and media executive producer tessa crone music by yoni avi patat audio engineering by lucid sound web design and blogs pj ewing This podcast is available on all podcast platforms. To learn more about each episode and guest, please visit us at theopennesters.com. For questions or to be a guest on our podcast, email tessa at theopennesters.com.